1: Berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Vas Kristadulu. Dr. Gabor Mate is a physician renowned for his humanistic approach to healing. He's returning to How To Academy in person in London next month to tell us about his new book, The Myth of Normal. In anticipation, I wanted to share our podcast from his last visit when he spoke to Hannah McInnes about the connection between stress and disease. Visit our website to find out more about Gabor's talk on the 11th of October. You can still join us in person or via live stream. And in the meantime, here are Gabor and
2: Hannah.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The talk you've just given, the the title was Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Connection Between Stress and Disease. I think you acknowledge yourself that this idea of a connection between stress and disease isn't necessarily hidden. We all know about it. Is the frustration, the thing that's inexplicable, is the fact that for some reason Western medicine fails to adapt to that, fails to react to that?
2: Well, two points. First of all... um the, the subtitle of the book I wrote on the subject, When the Body Says No, the Cost of Hidden Stress, is very specific. It didn't say the hidden cost of stress, it says the cost of hidden stress. And what I mean by that is is that we know the overt stresses, the external stresses that we're aware of, you know, poverty, uh, bad relationships on the job, um a bad boss or a difficult marriage, everybody knows these can stress people. What we don't know is about the hidden stresses that have to do with our hidden, unconscious beliefs that create a lot of stress in our lives. So uh, my emphasis on the hidden is not so much that that um, that we don't know about stress, but we don't know about the hidden stress, the, the stress that's unconscious to us. And secondly, uh, as you say, as much as we all intuitively know the connection between stress and illness, Western medicine takes no account of it. So that when you go to see a physician for an autoimmune disease or heart disease or or a neurological problem or a skin problem, even though stress plays a major role in the inside of all these conditions, you're never going to be asked about them, and you'll never be any offered help to to deal with them. I mean, it's not that the physician needs to know all about, be, a, be a psychotherapist, but the physician should at least know to ask the right questions.
1: So, what type of stresses are the unconscious ones?
2: Uh, The unconscious ones are automatic and compulsive beliefs that are rooted in childhood experience, have to do with lack of value, worthlessness. Uh, Therefore, we have to work to make other people like us and respect us. Uh, It has to do with the belief that um, what others think of us or how they accept us is more important than how we feel about ourselves or or that how we feel about ourselves depends on how other people feel about us. Um, that we mustn't be angry because angry people aren't lovable, that we mustn't say no because then people won't like us so we're letting them down and then we're bad people. These are usually unconscious.
1: So are you saying that in order to avoid sickness, um, being kind of true to yourself and self-aware is the most important thing you can be?
2: It's... One of the most important things it's essential. you also of course have to eat well and uh, look after your body and all that. but yes, if I had to name one thing as a, as a major preventive, it would be knowing ourselves deeply, knowing what we feel, and being true to ourselves
1: and you're saying that. Being self sacrificing or trying to please others is something that we should avoid. Is there a sense that is there a gender issue there? Because in general, women are the ones who feel more of a need to be self sacrificing and to be givers. Does that mean that women are more likely to get disease and sickness?
2: Very specifically means that so this it's not accidental that Seventy-five percent of autoimmune, autoimmune disease patients are women. Rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, um, uh, scleroderma, uh, gastrointestinal uh, inflammations, etc., etc. You know, skin conditions. Uh, women are, are are much more likely than men to develop this. Women also get more non-smoking related cancers. And if they get smoking related cancer, they're more likely to die of it than men are. And it's precisely because of these self-suppressive dynamics, which are not the fault of the individual woman, they're culturally exacted and culturally imposed.
1: And so why do you think that Western medicine isn't catching up with these things?
2: Well, first of all, it's not in the training. So the average physician does not get a single lecture on stress. I mean, they should get a course on it, but they don't even get a single lecture on it not in emotional stress the average physician does not learn the new science of or neuroimmunology which has delineated the actual physiological connections between you know emotional system and our physiological apparatus but they never hear about it the average physician does not get a single lecture on trauma childhood trauma and its impacts on mental and physiological health number one number two The system encourages quick in and out diagnosis, a 10-minute visit where there's no time for these conversations. Number three, many of the people who go into medicine are very driven people themselves who have got these unconscious dynamics. I know myself. I really needed that white coat and that stethoscope around my neck to feel okay about myself because I lacked a sense of self-value. So then when we lack it in ourselves, how can we deal with it in others? Number four, who funds research is pharmaceutical companies. There's no money in stress; the money is in, de- in in developing pills that people can take to deal with the impacts of stress. Number five: We live in an economic political system that fundamentally devalues individual for the sake of material gain, so that there's a kind of a systemic separation of mind and body. Because we saw pe- if we saw people as um, entities. With emotional needs, we wouldn't have the system we have right now. The austerity. In Britain, I read recently, 130,000 people have died over the years because of austerity programs. And then we talk about terrorism as being a major threat to life. It's not even comparable.
1: Talking about Britain, you know, we've, we've talked about gender. It is a British trait to suppress emotions or this stiff upper lip culture that we have yeah. do you notice or is there a pattern between british people getting more susceptible to disease than in other cultures because of that
2: i think it's pretty universal in the western world but um in britain you know john le carré the uh, mystery or the, the spy novelist i heard him say once in an interview that uh, you could be standing next to an upper class british person and they could be having a nervous breakdown and you wouldn't know it And um, this country ran a very brutal empire for hundreds of years. So the people that had to administer that empire, or had to go out into the wars and kill and die for it, had to be very distant from their emotions. So people were actually trained out of their emotions. If you look at the British public schools and how horrendously the boys were treated there, now they could go out there and be cruel to, uh, to the natives. And, 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 and not even a bad an eyelash. So there's, there's, a, there's a historical reason here as well, and, you know, not to mention the lower class who were then recruited into the army, who had to go and die by the banks of the Indus River. Uh, for what? For the British India Company? So that, you know, you go to Trafalgar Square, you've got all these statues to various um, uh, imperial uh, soldier heroes whose job mostly was to clamp down on on the natives who didn't want to be controlled by a foreign power. And so that demanded the stiff upper lip. That's not accidental. That's not a genetic trait of the British. It's simply what you have to do to maintain an empire. And, And it's interesting now that you've lost the empire. It's loosening up now. So that the queen's grandchildren are actually talking about emotions. And the queen is not too happy about that. She, you know, she's actually said that you know, let's just keep our our tasks to the royal duties of opening museums, but let's not open our hearts too much. Meanwhile, the grandchildren who've been traumatized because they lost their mother at a young age in a very tragic way, they're much more open to actually talking about mental health issues and and emotions.
1: Yes, so that is hopefully a, a positive. Yes. Generationally, we are now acknowledging the need to. Be more open.
2: It's happening, you know, and um, not to get too personal, but I've been writing books for 20 years now. The first book was and, and, and Britain was the last country almost to actually publish my books. Really? And I, I think they just weren't ready before. and And, and it's not because of me. Is because I, th- I think there has been a change here now, a very welcome change, where people are looking for answers. They want to be more introspective. They they want to understand their emotions and, and their relationship of their emotions to their lives and to their health. So I take that as a very positive sign.
1: Yeah, so that's fascinating. You've come here this time. You've perhaps received a better reception and a bigger audience than ever before because I, I society's changing and we are more ready to speak about our problems, which hopefully might mean improvements in terms of sickness and disease?
2: Well, I, I do have that uh, hope, and that's my intention in, 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 in um, conveying the message that I have, um, and it, it, it's very gratifying. However, we're still a long way away from the actual medical profession, let alone the political system, uh, acknowledging um, the importance of, of human emotion.
1: And I want to come back to that, what perhaps the political system could do or society could do. But as individuals, and you've mentioned it, childhood trauma, you think a lot of this or almost everything is traceable back to what happens to us as children and that we're taught or that one of the first things that happens to us when we're young is we feel we can't act on our instinct and our gut instinct. And it's for parents to try and change that in the home. How, How can they do that?
2: Yes. So it's just a matter of scientific fact that the brain develops an interaction with the environment and much of the input that shapes the physiological development of the brain and which circuits are going to function and in what way is very much determined by the emotional environment, which means our relationship with our primary caregivers. Which means that the more stressed our parents are, the more stressed the brains of infants are going to be. And so what you have right now is an epidemic of childhood disorders such as ADHD and other problems that are not because parents are being bad or uncaring or unloving, but because they stressed themselves. So the first thing parents have to do is to relook at their lives. And these are not just individual questions. They're really social, economic, and political questions. Because under conditions of, of austerity and, and, and cutbacks in social programs, parents are more stressed with a lot less support. So to the extent that they can, people need to uh, rebuild community, uh, in their personal lives and in their societies parents need to work on their own stresses and to be aware to learn to deal with them so they don't automatically normally be passing out to their kids and they need to relate to their kids in such a way that doesn't force the child to repress themselves in order to please the parent because that's the template for uh, illness in the long term
1: and i think someone whose teachings you potentially respectfully, or not so respectfully, feel free to disagree with, would be Jordan Peterson's... What, what disagreement do you have with him when it comes to the way that you should educate and react well, to your children?
2: Well, his fundamental messages, and you, you, you can read verbatim in his book, I mean, I have. And he says, for example, that parents should bring up children that they will like themselves, because otherwise society won't like their kids either. In other words, the job of the parent is to socialize the child. That's not the job of the parent. The job of the parent is to bring up a a uh, self-respecting, self-loving individual who will then automatically be respectful towards other people. But you don't begin by trying to fit the kid into your expectations. It's just the very opposite. And furthermore, he says that an angry two-year-old should, should be made to sit by themselves and not possibly even hit. In other words, the child's expressions of emotions are to be taken as um, forbidden, as, as, as forbidden, as, as, as something that's unacceptable. Well, basically, he's teaching parents to repress their children's uh, authentic, authentic selves. And so uh, it's the very opposite of, of what nature demands and, and what uh, anybody who understands human development would actually teach.
1: So ultimately, it's actually quite severe, his teachings, being if they are misguided, where, where that can end up, you feel is...
2: It's not accidental that he has an autoimmune disease and his daughter has an autoimmune disease. These aren't accidental. Uh, and, and I'm not blaming him. He's a very traumatized person, in my view. And that trauma reeks uh, from his demeanor. And you can hear it in a choked voice that he speaks in. Um, and he even acknowledges it, but he hasn't dealt with it. In my view, and uh, to me, he's not that interesting as a person. He's more interesting as a social phenomenon. And you have to ask, well, why does a person with such a repressive message get such huge play in the media? It's because he fits the ruling paradigm. And he basically um, talks about hierarchy as being embedded in human nature, and nowhere does he ask the question, is it really the case that the hierarchy that we have today reflects merit and genuine value, as opposed to power, or naked power, and naked wealth? In other words, he justifies the system. And that's why he gets such huge media play, because he's another ideologue um, uh, that, that, that buttresses the current political economic system. That's the only, no, as to why so many young men uh, find his uh, message appealing. There's something appealing in his message. He teaches self-responsibility. I acknowledge that. He just doesn't look at what gets in the way of responsibility. And But for some men, especially in this culture right now, who because of deindustrialization, neoliberal economic policies, have lost their roles as breadgiver, as breadwinners, as people with meaning and purpose in their lives, who have not received good parenting, he comes across as kind of a a Pied Piper of, of strength and male responsibility. And that's, I think, his appeal to to young men. But hidden in that is that repression, in that not owning vulnerability, that not opening to the feminine side. And it's not accidental that he denies that there's even a patriarchy. Uh, he, he denies that women suffer discrimination or he acknowledge acknowledges it in a very minor way. But, uh, so, you know, it's not interesting to me as a person. It's much more as a, as a, as a social phenomenon that it's interesting.
0: You... This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before
1: analyze quite a lot of people as social phenomena in the same sort of way i mean i've heard you talk about donald trump yeah in a very similar way absolutely to that
2: or hillary clinton for that matter
1: do you look at our? We're in a very strange time here in British politics. Do you look at any of our politicians and see that same sort of trauma? And if so, who?
2: Well, let's take somebody like um, Margaret Thatcher. Her dementia is not accidental. Her, uh, her, um, as I show in my book, dementia happens to people who are significantly emotionally repressed. And so she's uh, she says things like, "There's no such thing as society." which speaks to a total isolation of the individual. Where did she learn that? She learned that in childhood. So yeah, these leaders of ours are often very troubled people.
1: Do you think isolation, loneliness, which you know people have said we're in a loneliness epidemic here yeah. at the moment, that is a, a big problem. And how can society, in that and in the other things you've talked about, what sort of should society be doing to avoid these things?
2: Well, first of all, we know that loneliness kills, I mean, physiologically it kills, it, it, it suppresses the immune system, it makes you more prone for disease, and you're going to be more likely to die quicker of your disease if you're emotionally isolated, and there's all kinds of physiological reasons for that, because human relationships mitigate stress, they relax the nervous system, they support immunity, they support proper heart functioning. This, these are physiological facts. Uh, We're in an epidemic of loneliness uh, because um, in the 1970s, since neoliberal economics have taken over the Western world, uh, we've basically cut back on social programs, on support for social institutions, people have lost their jobs they lost the meaning of their jobs people having to scramble for existence they're stressed they have less time for social activity and what social activity remains to them is often confined to the impersonal and emotionally unsatisfying realm of the of of the online um media and internet and so that this Facebook, which is meant to bring people together, in theory actually separates them from one another. So there's a huge problem with loneliness right now, and we're paying the cost in in, in health.
1: So one of the things society should be looking to do is obviously try and encourage more
2: socialization. Uh, Community centers, communal activities, communal spaces.
1: And also, it's going back to your idea of we need to be happy with ourselves is therefore a more tolerant open society clearly something you seek a a
2: society that doesn't judge other people uh and doesn't invite people to judge themselves so that means having some curiosity so if somebody's behaving in ways that we don't like rather than condemning them why don't we find out what happened to them that makes them behave that way like the drug drug addicts, uh, you know, the criminals and so on. Uh, If... If I find myself behaving in ways I don't like, rather than condemning myself, how about asking myself, well, what in me made me do that? What was I trying to compensate for? In other words, a compassionate attitude towards ourselves and other people. But again, in a competitive society that teaches people that human beings are aggressive and uh, individualistic by nature, Compassion is hard to come by.
1: I'd like to just, because you've, you've brought up addiction, and obviously we could be here. If, I wish we had longer. Sure. Um, addiction is another thing that you write a lot about. And your idea, of course, is that, as you say, society should be much more compassionate to addicts. Why? What is it about addiction that you feel so sympathetic about?
2: Well, when you look at what actually addiction actually is which is any behavior that uh, a person craves or finds pleasure or relief in but then suffers negative consequences because of and can't give up, that's what an addiction is and just as I talked this morning to a room of five, 600 people and I asked according to that definition how many here have had an addiction everybody put their hand up, that's how common addictions are so why aren't we compassionate towards ourselves and why do we um so addictions can involve sex or work or gambling or shopping or drugs or alcohol or nicotine uh, or the internet or extreme sports or any number of activities. And the real question is, well, what is it that drives people? And when you ask people, what does the addiction do for you, like I did this morning, they say, it gave me pain relief or it made me feel better about myself. But we should all have pain relief. We should all feel better about ourselves. In addiction, in other words, the addiction is just a desperate attempt to solve a human problem. And the real question is why are we people in pain? And why don't people feel good about themselves? And it's just, never mind even compassion, just be curious.
1: But if we're all addicted to things, if it's extreme sports and it makes you feel good about yourself, why is it a bad thing?
2: Well, because you already forgot my definition of addiction. Addiction is any behavior that you crave, find temporary pleasure or relief in. Temporary. But has negative consequences. So if extreme sports can have negative consequences, if it doesn't, it's not an addiction. But, but, if, but if it makes you more isolated from people in your life, if it makes you uh, ignore your family and social responsibilities, if it causes physical injury repeatedly, then you've got an addiction.
1: And if it's not that, then the difference is it's a passion.
2: If it's if it has no negative consequences and it's just a joy and really then it's a passion, it's not the same as an addiction. Do I have to end?
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely have to end. Okay, well, I think there would be so so many more places we could go, and I'm sorry that it's so short. But thank you very very much indeed. And there'll be the there's the longer talk. I think people will be able to access too, hopefully. Thank you very very much.
2: Thanks, Anna. And uh, just to say, a lot of my talks are on YouTube for free people can just access them easily enough
1: yeah actually we cannot i'm sorry you're gonna to have to let me just say this because it's actually really important the next thing you've got coming up which you'll have to come back and talk to us about is yeah. you've got another book coming out in
2: i've got two new books that i'm working on one of them is called the myth of normal illness and health and an insane culture which will be published internationally including here in the uk in 2021
1: okay perfect so i think that's
0: the next podcast an insane culture
2: terrific thank you
0: This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Dr. Gabor Mate and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The show is produced by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Daugherty. Hope you can join us for Gabor's next visit in October, but until then, I'm Vas Christadoulu. Thanks for listening.